welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Dane Penites and I am a general surgery resident at Johns Hopkins Hospital and currently a research fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital in the Division of Cardiac Surgery. I have the distinct privilege of welcoming Dr. John Meyer back to the TSRA podcast for his second episode. Dr. Meyer is a pediatric heart surgeon and the senior associate in cardiac surgery at Boston Children's Hospital and professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. Today, we will be discussing congenitally corrected transposition of the great arteries. Thank you for joining, Dr. Meyer. Well, thank you for the invitation to participate, uh, and hopefully we'll have uh, some fun with this uh, somewhat complicated topic that you've chosen. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it, and I think we should start by defining the anatomy. What constitutes congenitally corrected transposition of the great arteries, also known as CCTGA? So congenitally corrected transposition, one simple way to think about it is that you have two wrongs. in the sense that the ventricular looping, which is what happens during development, results in the two ventricles being reversed in normal position. So that ventricle that looks like a right ventricle, a morphologic right ventricle, has a tricuspid valve leading into it, has got a papillary muscle that has a septal attachment, is highly trabeculated, that morphologic right ventricle is in the wrong place. So in a normal, normally positioned heart with levocardia apex pointing to the left, that means the right ventricle or that ventricle that looks like a right ventricle is actually going to be on the left side. And conversely, that ventricle that looks like a left ventricle is going to be on the right side. Left ventricle morphology being defined by smooth-walled septal surface, mitral valve leading into it. Uh, Those are the sort of morphologic characteristics that define what a ventricle is regardless of where it's located. So there's a morphologic right ventricle and a morphologic left ventricle and that right ventricle could be on the left side and the left ventricle could be on the right side which is typically the ventricular aspect of so-called congenitally corrected transposition. The second wrong, if you will, is that the great vessels are transposed. So in our usual case where we have atria in the normal place, the ventricles are inverted or L-looped. Most of the time that's uh, what we see when we have normal positions of the atria, so situs solitus. We have L-looped ventricles, but then that L-looped right ventricle on the left side is connected to the aorta. So the aorta is gone with the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery has gone with the left ventricle. So that's the second wrong. And so another synonym for this disorder is called physiologically corrected transposition. You'll see that term. Uh, And so the thing that makes this even more confusing 
is that there are situations in which the atrial situs is reversed and then you can have your morphologic right ventricle be on the right side but connected to the aorta and that winds up being physiologically corrected because the atrium that receives all the pulmonary venous return is connected to a right ventricle, morphologic right ventricle, which is then connected to the aorta. So that's a what we would call an IDD heart in the von Pragian nomenclature where uh, we identify each individual segment of the developing heart uh, separately. So atria is either situs solitus, situs inversus, or ambiguous. The ventricles are defined by the looping. So a D-loop ventricle means that that morphologic right ventricle is connected to the right AV valve. And then the great vessel relationship is the third segment. So a typical corrected transposition, congenitally corrected transposition, when the atria are normally positioned and normally related, is what we would call an SLL heart. So situs solitus of the atria, L-loop ventricles, L-transposition of the great arteries. And the mirror image of that is IDD, where you have situs inversus of the atria. You have D-loop ventricles, so your morphologic right ventricle is on the right side. And then the other problem is, or the second wrong, if you will, is detransposition of the great arteries. So that right ventricle, morphologic right ventricle, is connected to the aorta. So it's, it's easy to get lost in the terminology. And the Andersonian way, Anderson being a, a British cardiac pathologist, uh, you know, was to describe this as atrioventricular concordance and ventriculo-arterial concordance or discordance, um, I, you know, that's a lot more words and syllables than if you just said SLL or IDD, which is the shorthand that we use certainly in our institution and I think a lot of other places are using that as well. So that's, that's it. The one other thing I should say if you were trying to figure out looping of the ventricles because that's a embryonic uh, developmental sort of term but a de-looped ventricle if it's if a, rather I should say a morphologic right ventricle when you have a de-ventricular loop one way to just sort of think about it is if you put your hand on the septal surface of that ventricle and you put your thumb in the inlet valve and your index finger in the outlet valve, if it's a D-loop, then the only way you can do that for the right ventricle is with your right hand. So it's, in our terminology, that's a right-handed right ventricle. And in a normal D-loop, the left ventricle, if you do exactly the same thing, the only way you can put your palm on the septal surface, thumb in the inlet valve, and index finger in the outlet is with your left hand. So in a normal situation, D-looping, 
you'll have a right-handed morphologic right ventricle and a left-handed morphologic left ventricle. In LTGA, or what we call congenitally corrected transposition, exactly the reverse is the case. You have a left-handed morphologic right ventricle, so that's L-looped, and that's connected to the aorta. So that's the two wrongs make a right, you know, in terms of at least that's the way it's been described to some in the past. And then that can be associated with a bunch of different um, uh, associated defects. And in fact, most patients with congenitally corrected transposition typically have one or more of either a ventricular septal defect and or outflow obstruction, most commonly outflow obstruction in the morphologic LV to pulmonary artery pathway. That can be subvalvar, valvar, can vary from mild stenosis to complete atresia. Well, thank you very much. That was a great description. And I imagine many of our listeners right now are, are on the internet kind of looking at images because I know that certainly helps me. Um, we talked about structures that we can visualize. How does transposition or congenitally corrected transposition affect the conduction system? And how do you think about that? So the sort of classical understanding was that particularly this relates to uh, patients with a ventricular septal defect and or left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. If one were to uh, imagine uh, standing uh, near the, in, in the free wall of the right-sided morphologic left ventricle and looking up towards the outflow and then looking at the ventricular septal defect, which is going to be somewhere in reasonable proximity most of the time uh, to that inlet valve, which is in L-loop ventricles. We're talking the ventricle on the right side, but it's a morphologic left ventricle. So that, if you look there and you look at where the conduction system runs relative to the ventricular septal defect. So in the usual VSD, you'd expect it to run along the inferior margin of the of the ventricular septal defect in D-looped, otherwise uncomplicated uh, patients. But in L-loop ventricles, it runs over the top. And one way to sort of think about that is that we know that the normal His bundle, normally once it penetrates through the uh, tricuspid annulus in a normal heart, you know, it tends to run along the right side of the septum for a short distance before it breaks up into the left and right bundles and the left bundle then divides into anterior and posterior fascicles. So, in congenitally corrected transposition, in fact, the conduction system still stays at least initially, on the morphologic right side of this ventricular septum. So it goes with the morphologic right ventricle. That's pretty consistent. Uh, and we know that uh, in L-looped ventricles, at least, uh, that there is a Perhaps uh, one could characterize it as a more tenuous uh, 
conduction system because there is a non-trivial rate of development spontaneously developing complete heart block. Atria and ventricles become electrically disconnected. And, and we know that, you know, it doesn't take much to make heart block in a, uh, in a congenitally corrected transposition, at least L-looped. Now, the more interesting question is if you have the mirror image, which is so-called IDD um, heart uh, with a VSD, and, you know, for many years we thought that the conduction system in that arrangement, so atrial situs inversus, but de-looped ventricles, that the uh, atrioventricular conduction pathway would run along the inferior margin, so more like the usual arrangement, if you will, uh, in patients with deventricular loop. It turns out that now, particularly more recently, we've started doing you know, more careful mapping using uh, catheters that you can actually you know, put in various places, uh, you know, the electrophysiology type catheters where they do their mapping like for atrial arrhythmias and such. Um, it turns out that there's more variability than we originally thought in the IDD heart. But suffice it to say as a general rule of thumb and the most common forms of congenitally corrected transposition where there is L looping of the ventricles, uh, most of the time that conduction pathway once you get through the AV valve annulus is going to run over the top of the VSD rather than more on the apical side of the VSD. Um, so, you know, it's another unique aspect, particularly of the L-looped ventricles, L-TGA uh, hearts. Great. Well, I think we're now ready to move to a case presentation. A four-year-old male is seen by his pediatrician for dyspnea because he can't keep up with his friends while playing outside. The ensuing workup eventually includes a transthoracic echocardiogram, which identifies congenitally corrected transposition. And he is referred to a cardiologist who, after seeing him, subsequently refers him to you for surgical consideration. First, where does this patient fall with regard to the spectrum of presentations of congenitally corrected transposition? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's a significant incidence, probably close to half of the patients who have congenitally corrected transposition will have something else uh, wrong and a significant percentage of those patients have uh, a ventricular septal defect. So this would be a, a relatively common uh, combination of defects. And so from a physiologic or pathophysiologic perspective, well, this child is going to be just like anyone else with a ventricular septal defect. It just happens he's got this interesting morphologic problem of, you know, the ventricle that's pumping, that's primarily pumping blood to the body happens to be a morphologic right ventricle, and the pulmonary ventricle, if you will, is a morphologic left ventricle. But otherwise, I think from a clinical perspective, this patient would present in a similar fashion to anyone else with a VSD. Uh, four years old is a little late, you know, maybe this patient was not, uh, you know, seen very often uh, in his early years and 
So it would be a little unusual for somebody to make it to four years, at least in the current era, and not have already had this identified. I, I think a more common set of circumstances is the four-year-old child, you know, who doesn't have a VSD or any significant outflow tract obstruction who just shows up. Uh, it's got corrected transposition. Physiologically, the heart works normally. The blue blood goes to the lungs. The red blood goes to the body. That patient is, um, uh, you know, physiologically corrected as, as uh, we have described previously. Uh, but uh, in any event, in this case where there's a ventricular septal defect, then that really dominates the clinical presentation. So what additional information are you looking for in a history and physical exam at this point? Well, I think the history that you've given me that the patient has trouble keeping up, in other words, exercise limited, uh, I would be interested for other typical sort of findings or historical findings in patients with ventricular septal defects as, you know, frequent respiratory infections, you know, uh, those at a four-year-old would probably be the two major historical uh, features. You certainly want to know if the patient is blue for any reason. Uh, and, you know, behind that question is concern that maybe this has been an unrestricted VSD for too long and the patient is on the pathway to developing irreversible pulmonary vascular disease. Um, you know, from the description, doesn't sound like that has happened yet, but we know that from old natural history studies, particularly in the early days of cardiac surgery, when it was, people were trying to figure out which VSDs you could safely close and which ones you couldn't. I think once patients get beyond one or two years of age with a significant size VSD, then they really start to become at significant risk for having or being on the pathway to developing uh, obstructive pulmonary vascular disease or so-called Eisenmenger type uh, physiology. Okay. Well, this patient has been pro healthy prior to this finding with no significant past medical history. He denies any palpitations or funny heartbeats. On exam, he is small for age. He is not cyanotic and has a holosystolic murmur best heard in the left lower sternal border. Um, he gets a transthoracic echocardiogram which reveals a non-restrictive VSD without significant left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, a properly functioning tricuspid valve, and the most common coronary anatomy seen in patients with congenitally corrected transposition with the morphologic right coronary artery arising from sinus one, which is the leftward posterior sinus, and the morphologic left coronary artery arising from sinus two, which is the rightward anterior sinus. Is there any additional information you require prior to offering surgery? Well, I, I think you've pointed out some of the pertinent negatives. You'd want to know if there's any outflow tract obstruction to, uh, it most commonly would be out of the morphologic left ventricle. Um, but um, <clears throat> other typical exclusions, you'd want to make sure there's not a coarctation that sometimes can occur, particularly with a ventricular septal defect. Uh, and um, the function of that tricuspid valve, which is your systemic atrioventricular valve, 
uh, is obviously important uh, because in the natural history of patients who have congenitally corrected transposition, the failure of that morphologic tricuspid valve that's on the left side that's functioning as a systemic AV valve uh, is an important part of the natural history and an important reason why some of these patients, uh, particularly those with intact ventricular septum, ultimately become symptomatic is if they start developing tricus morphologic tricuspid left AV valve regurgitation. Sure. Who should get further studies such as a cardiac catheterization? Well, I think in this situation, um, you would, I, I probably would be more comfortable if I uh, had a cardiac cath so that we could measure pulmonary artery pressures, pulmonary blood flow, and calculate pulmonary vascular resistance. Uh, I think uh, that would be important to just make sure that we're not dealing with a patient who's already developed a significant pulmonary vascular obstructive disease. It would be, you can make an argument about whether or not that would stop you from doing an operation. Uh, at this age, is sort of a little bit in between. You'd certainly want to test for whether or not the patient was, pulmonary vascular bed was responsive to vasodilators, particularly nitric oxide, 100% oxygen are the two most common tests that are used to see if either the pulmonary artery pressure would go down or the pulmonary blood flow would go up and that yielding a fall in pulmonary vascular resistance. So that, that would be important to do those physiologic tests for that uh, particular patient uh, that we're dealing with here. Um, and, you know, the anatomy can otherwise be pretty well determined uh, by the non-invasive imaging. I think the other you know, question that would come up potentially uh, would be whether or not that morphologic left ventricle that's on the right side is going to be capable of being a systemic ventricle, that is pumping blood to the aorta. Uh, and that's, uh, in a patient with a large VSD, as you describe, an unrestricted VSD, it's pretty unlikely that that ventricle would not be prepared, I put that in quotation marks, um, you know, to be the systemic ventricle. I think where that gets more complicated is in the patients who might have a restrictive VSD but no left ventricular outflow tract obstruction so that that ventricle has become accustomed to uh, pumping at a lower pressure. Um, the assessment of those ventricles and whether or not they are, again in quotation marks, prepared to serve as a systemic ventricle, I think is an area where our ability to predict is imperfect. Um, you know, there are multiple modalities that one might bring to bear to try to figure out whether or not a ventricle is prepared. Uh, you know, one line of thought involves trying to understand what would happen to the wall stress in that ventricle uh, if you all of a sudden 
changed its conditions and particularly the afterload conditions so that it's now pumping at systemic pressure as opposed to pumping at a lower pressure to which it had become accommodated over four years. Uh, so there's the sort of mechanics part of it. And remember Laplace's law applies here and you know what determines wall stress is a function not only of the intracavitary pressure but also the wall thickness. And so when, uh, as well as the radius of the ventricle or diameter. So, you know, you have to try to get an idea about what all three of those things are. Uh, that is, what's the projected pressure, what's the diameter going to be, and then what's the wall thickness, because the wall thickness reduces wall stress by the Laplacian formula. So. Uh, you would want to know that. You'd want to know in particular whether the wall thickness was sufficient to be able to accommodate this increase in afterload when you make it a systemic ventricle. That's probably not the whole story. Uh, and at least there's one recent publication this year, 2021, in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery where we actually studied a group of autopsy specimens looking at uh, whether or not patients who failed a preparation step uh, in making that left ventricle get thicker, if it had been working at low pressure, how would you prepare that ventricle you know, to then be able to accommodate or adapt to an increase in the wall stress because you've increased the afterload. Uh, and in that study, we found that in the patients who failed, there were significantly lower capillary density, despite the fact that there was myocyte hypertrophy. Uh, and so it may be that at least a component of a morphologic left ventricle that's used to be in a pulmonary ventricle and now has to be doing the work to be a systemic ventricle and pump at aortic pressures and high afterload, um, you know, the, it may not just be a matter of the mechanics and Laplace and wall thickness, but there may well be a coronary vascular development or capillary proliferation uh, phase that, uh, you know, that has to occur as part of that preparation. I, I think number of patients was relatively small. Uh, so it was, um, you know, I don't think one can say anything very definitive about it, but at least it suggests that that might be another mechanism for this ventricle to not work so well as a systemic ventricle. In this case, where there's been a ventricular septal defect, unrestrictive since birth, the likelihood would seem quite high that this ventricle is used to working at higher pressures. It certainly likely to have been volume loaded, so it's actually working at a greater uh, intraventricular diameter. Uh, and the likelihood is quite high that uh, that ventricle would be prepared to serve as a systemic ventricle. Great. Well, our four-year-old male undergoes a cardiac catheterization and he does not have elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. And I would like to take a break now from this case uh, to discuss surgical options. Can you please provide us with an overview of the history of repair for congenitally corrected transposition?
Well, um, number one, for patients who have congenitally corrected transposition and intact ventricular septum, they sometimes will go a lifetime without being discovered. There's certainly more than a few reports in the literature about patients who have grown up into adulthood and who have never known there was anything wrong with their heart until maybe they spontaneously developed heart block or because that happens as we discussed uh, or the other thing that happens to them is that that morphologic right ventricle that's left-sided can fail either because of dilation plus minus the development of tricuspid regurgitation. It's always hard to know which came first, whether the ventricular ventricle failing leads to the TR or whether or not the morphologic abnormalities of the tricuspid valve uh, have uh, contributed to it now becoming regurgitant. But suffice it to say that those, um, you know, the, that's part of the natural history untreated of patients with corrected, congenitally corrected transposition. Um, you know, the operations that uh, have been done, particularly for some time, uh, that were associated with, uh, or were done for associated defects, I should say, uh, particularly ventricular septal defects, plus minus left ventricular alpha tract, so physiologically more like a tetralogy patient, uh, were historically were to close the ventricular septal defect and then surgically try to relieve the left ventricular alpha tract obstruction. Um, that was associated with a significant uh, incidence of heart block post-repair. Uh, there were techniques that were developed to try to uh, accommodate uh, for the fact that the conduction system is abnormally located. In fact, I can remember in early days, um, you know, actually having done this operation where you're just closing a VSD in a patient who has CCTGA. Uh, and you would have to work through the mitral valve, right-sided mitral valve, and in order to place your sutures to, to uh, secure a VSD patch, you would actually have to reach through the VSD and then, you know, it's this funny sort of backhand stitch that one had to do, particularly a little along the superior margin of the defect in order to place your sutures there and then you would put the patch in so that it, all, most of it was actually lying on the morphologic right ventricular side of this VSD, which is sort of like what you would do in a normal, uh, quote unquote, normal VSD with D-loop ventricles. You'd want all your sutures and everything to be placed on the right side to try to at least preserve, you know, the left bundles, uh, uh, and in the his bundle would be remain intact. So that that was a pretty common operation, although you know from an incident standpoint, this is not a very common kind of set of problems, but that was the approach and then one would do whatever you could to try to relieve the alpha tract obstruction from the left ventricle, morphologic left ventricle out to the pulmonary arteries. 
Typically, that might involve a pulmonary valvotomy or resecting some of the tissue from the subvalvar area. But again, in that situation, you know, you ran the risk of again developing heart block. Uh, and then there were a group of patients, typically with somewhat uh, some degree of ventricular imbalance, who were actually managed down a single ventricle pathway. And so there's an old paper from our institution that Victor Haraska uh, was the first author on where we actually looked at a whole series of patients with congenitally corrected transposition. And out of that group, actually, those, at least over the short to intermediate term, the patients who were managed down a single ventricle pathway were, uh, did the best, actually. The other patients, uh, frequently, and probably the worst group, were those with isolated morphologic RV uh, dysfunction and morphologic tricuspid valve uh, regurgitation were the ones who did the worst. So if your ventricle had lost enough function and you had enough TR and all you really had to do to help that patient was to replace or repair the tricuspid valve, that actually was the worst survival group. But this idea of the right ventricle not being morphologically adapted to serve as a systemic ventricle over the course of a lifetime uh, led to increasing interest in trying to reorganize the anatomy and the circulation in such a way that the morphologic left ventricle could become the systemic ventricle. And so there are two sort of subsets of that. One would be to do uh, two corrections, that is correct the inflow at the atrial level as well as switching the great vessels, or so-called double switch operation, or the second option would be to do an atrial rerouting, a la mustard sending, you know, whichever one prefers, uh, and then use the VSD as a pathway for blood to get from the right-sided morphologic left ventricle across the VSD to get to the aorta and then place a conduit from the morphologic right ventricle on the left side out to the pulmonary arteries, a so-called Senninger mustard slash Restelli uh, type approach. And I think particularly as the natural history of this disorder uh, with the incidence of failure of that morphologic RV as a systemic ventricle and failure of the tricuspid valve as a systemic atrioventricular valve, then this approach of so-called double switching uh, by whichever of the techniques is appropriate for the typical anatomic subgroup uh, has become more popular. And we're still learning about this, I would say, even though I think I did the first Sinning Rostelli in the mid to late 1980s. Um, the patient has had to come back for a conduit change, but otherwise, you know, still is doing well. Uh, but what we're learning, and I think one of the other things that we've learned is that if you develop AV block, that actually affects 
in a very adverse way the function of that morphologic left ventricle that we have now uh, asked to be the systemic ventricle. And we've had some limited experience and reported, uh, you know, that with uh, trying to use resynchronization uh, pacing therapy uh, for that subgroup, some of the patients have improved, others have not. So it's, uh, you know, it's still probably the important and important Achilles heel, if you will, of this sort of double switching approach. Got it. Um, so now, returning back to our patient, what would you offer him and his family? Well, I think today, assuming no pulmonary vascular disease and uh, likely a well-prepared left ventricle uh, to serve as a systemic ventricle, I, I would offer a VSD closure uh, with atrial and arterial level uh, switch. So a double switch plus a VSD closure. And in this situation, typically what uh, has been done is to, one could just discuss the approaches to the VSD. Uh, and we could approach this, again, working through the mitral valve using the similar sort of techniques of placing the patch on the morphologic RV side. Uh, or the other approach that has been used uh, and I have certainly used, is to close the VSD through an infundibular incision. So we're making an incision in the morphologic right ventricle uh, and the right ventricular outflow tract. And that way you're sure, or more sure, that your patch is going to be secured with sutures that are some distance from the conduction system. So I think those are the those are the options that I would certainly uh, consider. But I think uh, in this patient with a prepared so-called uh, left ventricle, then I think that would be the approach that we would use here. Okay. Can you give us some of the highlights of your informed consent process? What are you discussing with the family? The approach I've generally taken has been to try to make sure that the families uh, understand what the natural history is, if you will, if we did nothing, because that's always the default option. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as a general rule, I think that it's useful to provide information to patients and families, you know, in an understandable way. I think almost everyone, regardless of educational or socioeconomic status or whatever, understands odds. Um, and because everybody's rolled the dice or played poker or whatever. And so uh, I couch all of these decisions and discussions uh, on that sort of odds approach. So my sort of mantra is, you know, we're trying to offer your child the treatment pathway that provides the best odds and the least risk. Nothing that we do in medicine in general and certainly in surgery is risk-free. So what we're trying to do is to prescribe or describe a course of therapy that provides the best odds and the least risk. Uh, it's important, you know, that they understand from that context, you know, what's the natural history if we do nothing? What's happens if we use alternative techniques 
close the VSD in the cath lab or, you know, whatever you might want to imagine, you know, what the natural history is if we were to do a so-called traditional approach where we would leave that morphologic RV as the systemic ventricle and the morphologic LV as the pulmonary ventricle, what's the risks particular to this operation, heart block being the one that first comes to mind, but with atrial level repairs, there's always a risk for developing either systemic or pulmonary venous obstruction, risk for residual VSD, risk for you know coronary problem because we're going to be moving the coronaries if you're doing a double switch uh, and then the usual associated risks with any cardiac operation for bleeding and infections and transfusion related disease etc but uh, and and clearly there's a mortality risk to this I, I shouldn't uh, minimize that uh, although in a more recent era uh, I would say across the country, uh, looking at the outcomes from the STS database, I think the so-called double switch approaches now has mortality rates in the 5% or less uh, range, you know, assuming there are no complicating factors. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the family uh, appreciates your discussion with them and they want to proceed with the double switch. Can, though there's many steps, can you walk us through some of the key surgical steps and the potential pitfalls? Well, the, um, you know, clearly you have to establish bypass through a sternotomy. Um, uh, I was taught uh, to do atrial level repairs by the so-called modified sending technique. So I always would leave a lot of the right-sided part of the pericardium intact because we actually use that as part of the pulmonary venous pathway. Um, and one has to obviously go on bypass. Uh, it's actually important to get the particularly the venous cannulas as far out of the way as possible. So I would pretty commonly cannulate the innominate vein, for instance, for upper body drainage and make my IVC cannula, you know, down as far as I could, just so it gave you more room in the atrium. Uh, I, I personally prefer to do all of this under a single period of aortic cross clamping, but others you know, have taken the approach of doing the atrial level repairs under ventricular fibrillation and then restricting the cross clamp time by just using it for the arterial switch plus or minus the VSD closure for a typical patient with, you know, that you're not having to do a Rostelli in, but uh, just doing a aortic and atrial level switching. Um, you know, coronary transfer is not a whole lot different than it is in patients with a much more common detransposition of the great arteries. Um, harvesting buttons, making sure you have appropriate mobility for the coronaries as you're trying to move them to the neo-aorta. Um, I think, uh, you know, in the VSD closure and the techniques for doing that, I think we've already described. Um, and, and I think, obviously, everybody should come out of the operating room with uh, temporary pacing wires, I would for sure leave both uh, atrial and ventricular pacing wires temporary. If there was any question about 
the rhythm coming out. I might put even permanent wires on and bury them and then we can come back and visit you know, later whether or not a permanent pacemaker would be required. I do think the other thing that's really important, and I think there's increasing evidence to now support this, uh, although I think we always knew this, was that uh, you know the best predictor of a good outcome after a congenital heart operation of any sort is the anatomic integrity of the repair. And so I think it's really important to try to make sure as best one can either by imaging or by actually doing, you know, you know, a heart cath on the table, uh, sampling in various places for oxygen saturations to make sure you don't have a residual VSD and making sure that you don't have obstruction uh, by measuring ventricular and great vessel pressures, for instance, uh, as well as using, you know, the imaging, which is now so much better than it was 15 or 20 years ago, whether it's transesophageal or even epicardial uh, echocardiogram, to really make sure as best one can that the repair has accomplished what you intended and that you haven't left residual defects. Great. Well, the patient undergoes a technically successful double switch um, and is now in the ICU. What is the expected post-operative course and what are the long-term care expectations? Well, if you have an anatomically good repair and you've selected the patient right, you've got a prepared left ventricle, I think, you know, this patient might have a one or two day intensive care unit stay and, you know, could go home relatively quickly in a week or so would be a not unexpected course. I think obviously the things that would complicate that are rhythm, I would say, is probably the major uh, issue uh, that keeps people uh, in the intensive care unit longer you know, may require a trip back to the operating room. Uh, I get four years, this child's probably a little on the small side for having a transvenous uh, operation. And I think if we had post-operative heart block, we would probably uh, use uh, resynchronization therapy right from the get-go uh, in, in this particular patient population. Uh, Otherwise, I think the prognosis is quite good, uh, particularly if you have sinus rhythm. Uh, you know, these patients have really had a pretty flat survival curve. Uh, you know, in other words, there's not a lot of mortality risk uh, in follow-up, and that's not really long-term, uh, in, particularly in the patients who are having double switches, but uh, as opposed to the sinning Restelli or mustard Restelli, which sort of was among the earlier uh, approaches, particularly for those with VSD and left ventricular alpha tract obstruction. So, But I think there would be reason to be optimistic but uh, about survival, but I think because of this rate of spontaneous development of complete heart block and the negative effects that seems to have on ventricular function, then one would have to be pretty careful uh, in follow-up and make sure that the patients are staying in sinus rhythm. Uh, and have a pretty low threshold uh, if they start developing, you know, second degree block, you know, winky block, or even any indication that there's a problem with AV conduction. I think one has to be then really vigilant and uh, 
have a low threshold for going to uh, pacing therapy, in particular resynchronization therapy. Great. Well, our patient uh, successfully leaves the hospital after about a week um, and is doing back to doing normal child things uh, Great. there shortly after. Dr. Meyer, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed this uh, discussion. I hope you have too, and maybe we can even get you back for a third one at some point later down the road. But thank you for sharing your expertise and your insight into this really fascinating anomaly. Great. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to participate.